Good morning. Oh, it's good to see you. We are in a uh, teaching series called Citizens. And if you're new, I've seen a lot of people here I've never seen before, which is great. Um, And some people I haven't seen for a long time, which is also great. Um, And we're in a series called Citizens at the moment. And what we're doing is looking at a series of issues about which Christians need to think clearly if we're going to be citizens of earth in a way that's informed by our citizenship of heaven. That is, we're looking at things where you have, Christians have to know, what, do I get, what am I going to think about government or economics or welfare or immigration or justice or war or those kinds of things? How do I think about those things as a Christian? Or do I just have to sort of pick up the papers and have a, you know, do my best? And so we're looking at how does a Christian think about a lot of those issues? And this morning we are looking at the ever sticky and fascinating issue of immigration, which is... Did you see that? In, you hear that sort of audible intake of breath. <laughs> um, and I'm just, how should Christians think about immigration, border control, asylum seekers, and the EU? What could possibly go wrong? I mean, seriously, <laughs> so, so pleased to be doing this. Well, surprisingly enough, the Bible doesn't tell us how we should vote on an EU referendum. When I wrote this talk, it was more about, I, it, to be honest, I thought Labour were going to win the election overall. I didn't think we were going to have a referendum, and that because I preached it in Seaford a few weeks ago. Now I'm preaching it here, and we got a referendum. I think, wow, this has become a lot more relevant. Thank you very much, David Cameron, just for making our preaching series make that a little bit smoother. Um, but the Bible doesn't tell us how to vote in a referendum. It doesn't tell us whether we should be in or out. It doesn't tell us what sort of border controls we should have. It doesn't tell us whether or not to have an Australian-style point system. And it doesn't tell us what sorts of questions we should ask of people before allowing them or not into the country. Although I think we can agree that some of the things that we ask people are just stupid. And I'm going to say that as an attempted immigrant a number of times into America, where you have to fill out, you don't, it's now done electronically. But do you remember they used to, it's like those of you who travel to the States, these sort of incredibly long, thin green cards, like this. Not like the green card, but like these sort of long, bendy, wavy things. And you have to tick a box saying, do you or do you not have a bomb on your person? Do, are you a terrorist? Do you want to kill Barack Obama? And you think, I really can't imagine any possible world in which anybody would tick yes to any of these questions. And as you're going through them thinking, no, 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 and obviously I would say that, wouldn't I? And we got to the front of the queue, on, of the immigration queue at Chicago Airport, me and Rachel and our then nine-month-old baby son, having tr- flown transatlantically with a baby, stressful-ish, pretty tired, eager to get and see our friends and get out of the airport. Long, long queue, one of those ones where you're just never getting any closer, just doing this indefinitely. And then you get to the front, And you hand over your two cards and your three passports. And the guy says, where's the passport for for the boy? The the card, rather, for the boy. So I said, well, we didn't fill out a card for the boy. I I imagine we can all get together with the fact that he was not involved in the Holocaust. Even though I know that that's that's one of the boxes. No, no. And they kicked us out, the queue, and said, go and stand over there, complete your new form, leave the queue. We had to come back in again. Like, Rachel just burst into tears. I was like, this, you want me to declare whether or not my son is trying to assassinate Obama or was part of the Holocaust? Seriously, what are we doing? And I thought it was just the Americans. And the odd thing was, of course, the, the front, America is the most amazing country, except for the front hundred yards. Yeah? Your first hundred yards in America is like they're the most scowling face of villains. And it's this weird thing, because you've got these guys staring at them, why are you coming? You're obviously trying to bomb me. And above them, there's always this video. Um, and it's like these panning shots over the Grand Canyon and the plane. And America's a good country to work with to make a video saying, isn't this country nice? Like you've got every kind of scenery imaginable and you've got these Hawaiian people going, aloha, and you've got all these Texans going, howdy, welcome to America. And underneath you've got this guy going, what do you want to do in here? And was your nine-month-old involved in the Holocaust? And you just think, what is going on here? So this, I thought it was just the Americans. 
And then I found that we're even worse. Because, of course, I've never entered England as an immigrant. I've always, I'm a national, so I just come in, wave my passport, they look at it, they go, yeah, thanks for coming, and in you go. Until my friend Pete Cooley, who will be known to many of you, who lived with us for two years and has just gone back to the States to be part of a church plant in New York. He was our youth worker here for two years, but they didn't believe him. They didn't think he was, they thought he was here for some underhand, scurrilous purposes. They detained him, they locked him up, they put him in a cell. I went to visit him there. You had to you'd walk 10 meters, there's doors this thick, which would then have to be unlocked and opened by guards. And because they just they've decided for whatever reason they didn't believe he wasn't trying to disappear into the underground and find a job. And I thought, there are a lot of ways in which we don't quite extend the welcome that matches our national video, I would have said. And we are just as bad as anybody else. So I think we can probably agree that there might be some forms of border control and or questioning that might not be the most useful that there are. But the Bible doesn't tell us beyond that how we are to think about a lot of these issues, partly because it was written in an age when there weren't any such things as national borders. They just didn't exist. The Roman Empire, you could walk from Carlisle to Baghdad without crossing an international boundary. So they didn't have debates like we do about national borders, and that matters in various ways in this discussion. So the gospel and the scriptures don't tell us what to do about a lot of these issues, but what they do do very clearly is to proclaim the death of us and them us and them thinking. They say, that's got to go. That's got to die in Christ with you. That has got to be gone. There is no way to be a Christian and to think of yourself as your primary allegiance being British or being white or being this or that or, for that matter, black and Nigerian or Australian or Bangladeshi or whatever it might be. That is no longer your primary identity and you cannot fragment and think of yourself as superior to another group over there if you're a Christian. It just doesn't work. Your primary identity now is in Christ and that reconfigures everything. And human relationships which are formed down those kind of lines, our tribe and their tribe, our family, their family, our clan, our football team, our city, our county, our nation, all of those things have got to be demoted way down, if they're even a factor at all, and replaced with your identity being Christ. And so what scripture does repeatedly is to proclaim the death of us and them thinking and replace it with a unity in Christ. And one particularly clear text in which this happens is Colossians 3, which I just want to read now. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there and just read it with. It's great to bring Bibles anyway, even though we put them up here for visitors and people who are new. But if you've got one, please do bring it, because it means you can engage with the text in your own content. You can make your notes, you can scribble, you can argue, and you can go back to it when it's not on the screen. So it's good to do that. But Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul is making a very simple point in this passage, actually. For all that it sounds quite fluid and rhetorical and complex, he's actually saying something quite straightforward. Jesus died and has been risen, and therefore you, if you're in him, you have died and been risen, and therefore you now need to do everything in line with your new self and not your old one. That's, That's what he's saying, right? Jesus died and was risen, and therefore you're in him, so you have too, and that means you now need to live daily putting off the old the dead self, and putting on the new, the living, resurrected self, if you like. That's how he's trying to get us to think. It's using the image of clothes. You need to now live according to who you are in Jesus Christ. That's the idea. And he then gives three broad areas in which he's going to apply that. He talks about sex in verses 5 to 7, and then he talks about speech in verses 8 to 10, and then this morning, for our text for this morning, our focus in verse 11, he talks about the way you think about other social or racial groups. So yes, okay, you've got to put to death your sexual morality. So the people you, people you have sex with or not, right? That is part of the old you. If you've got to die, to die to the old you and embrace the new you, the new Christian vision of sexuality and marriage. You also need to die to the old you's way of speaking. So you're no longer using your mouth for obscenity or to mock and destroy other people, but you're using it to edify and build them up. And... You need to think about yourself now, no longer as an us and them kind of community, but as a place where there's no Greeks and Jews, uncircumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Those two words probably need a bit of comment, right? A circumcised or uncircumcised person, somebody who does or does not have a foreskin, somebody who is or is not ethnically Jewish. Greek and Jew, Greek, you speak Greek, Jew, you're a Hebrew, even if you do speak Greek, you would regard yourself as a different nation. But a barbarian, that's a word that might take a little bit more to sort of tease out. What's a barbarian? A barbarian is a group of people, a person who lives outside the boundaries of the civilized world where nobody can understand a word they're saying. And they talk like they go, ba, 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 ba. So we will call them barbaroi or barbarians, right? They are the out there. They're the, the loony fringe off over there doing this little weird, you know, when Alan Rickman in, in um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, hears the idea of using the Celts on his side and he just goes, Celts? They drink the blood of their dead, right? There's a nation like that for every group of people. For us, it's historically usually been the French. There's this group of people that you, I'm not saying it should be, I'm just saying that British people, that's where the bias has gone. And there's a group of people that you regard a bit like that, a a sort of the, the, the other people who talk funny and do weird things. And Christians, Paul is saying here, are not to have any truck with that. But that's the way that most civilizations function. And in the ancient world, the barbarians were those people. They were the ones beyond the pale. And then Scythians. And the Scythians, are, so if the barbarians were mainly in sort of central Europe, Germany and so on, the Scythians would mainly have been whether a group of people from what's currently like Iran and Kazakhstan, so off more towards the northeast of where they were by a thousand miles or so. And they also would have been this sort of other nation who come in in waves and invade things and then disappear. So these are the kinds of people that you would regard as completely unlike you and out there. And Paul is saying, you are not to think like that in the church. You are no longer to identify yourself as being Greek versus Jew versus circumcised, uncircumcised, slave-free, barbarian Scythian. And those two words matter because Paul is not simply saying this is a religious thing. It's not just Greeks and Jews. You could get alongside that. You say, well, obviously, because that's a religious thing. But actually saying, no, it's not just a religious thing. It's an ethnic thing as well. 
You are no longer to have those divisions within the people of God. Jesus said it about family. Who is my mother? Anyone who does my will is my mother. Peter saw it about Jewishness. Don't call unclean anything God has called clean. And here Paul applies it to nationality, geography, culture. Here there is no British, Polish, Pakistani, Afghan, Spanish, Latino, Portuguese, but Christ is all and is in all. That's what he's doing. Now, that doesn't address all the questions we have about migration. Far from it. There's loads left, loads of room for policy discussions within that context. But it does give an awful lot of things that are said and felt and repeated in popular British culture a firm punch on the nose. And because an awful lot of popular debate in this country is framed using us and them thinking disguised as policy suggestions or proposals. It goes right down to the language we use and the tone of voice in which people say things. And it permeates not just the newspapers and the media, but also the way people talk in the shop and in the pub and the way that people talk to friends. We've all heard it, right? People talk in unhelpful, us and them reinforcing ways about people from other nations. And that's actually true of people who are native British and others as well. Lots and lots of people do it. And Paul is saying, here, we don't have that. It doesn't happen in the church. It mustn't happen in the church. Now, that's a good way in to look at that subject and to look at some of the ways us and them thinking colours the discussion. I thought I would take a potshot at a newspaper. But because I've offended everybody in the room many times over who read the Daily Mail, I thought I'd give Daily Mail readers a pass. Do I hear a cheer? Yeah, there's a handful of Daily Mailers there. They're very happy they're not going to be picked on today. Instead, even worse, the Daily Express. Now, so the Daily Express, I don't know whether that's yes, we're going to bash the Express, or yes, I like the Express, don't you bash them. I'm not sure which it was, and I'd probably better not find out before I do the next little bit of the talk. So, this is a series of headlines that appeared on the front page of the Daily, Daily Express in just a three-month period. Okay? Um, so, I wrote this talk a few weeks back, so it's not the last three months to today, but it was in, in a three-month period, all of these... There's only three headlines on the front page of the Daily Express ever. Oh, the weather! Oh, the migrants! Oh, the benefits! And then in, and interchange, right? There's all those three. Any day of the week, you look at the Daily Express, one of those three things will be on there. And this, or maybe, and also, oh, the royals, that's sometimes on there as well, okay? Here's just in one three-month period, right? Uh, meet the dog who ate an Aston Martin is not the key point there, but one in four babies is born to a migrant mother. Next one. Uh, asylum seekers, how they cost you 400 million pounds. Next one. Migrant numbers out of control. Next one. Migrants facing ban on benefits. Next one. Outrage, free NHS for illegal migrants. Next one. Migrants face benefits ban. Next one. £1.4 billion benefits bill for the EU something coming to EU migrants coming to Britain. Next one. Can't even see which one that is. Now migrants mass in new camp across the channel. Next one. Benefits Britain, here we come. Next one, this is in three-month period. Migrant numbers at crisis point. Next one. Migrant beggars on £36,000 a year. Next one. Migrants set to flood in. In three months, you get in the message. Now, if you lived in a country where those headlines appeared on the newspapers every time you went to the petrol station, you, I suspect, would not feel as welcome as you might like to. And the reason why I draw attention to this is really what that is, is simply us and them thinking, masquerading in a variety of different would-be stories. I'm not saying Christians cannot read the Daily Express. I personally don't, and I wouldn't. 
But I think if you do, you have to screen through continually. This is trying to reinforce an us and them thing that I, in Christ, need to put to death. Let me give you an example of how us and them thinking works, even at the level of language. What do you call somebody who comes from somebody else's country to live in this country? An immigrant. What do you call somebody from this country who goes to live in another country? An expat. How did that happen? How is it? I've just seen Joel and Claire, right? They've moved out to Kenya. They are expats out there. We don't think of them as immigrants there. We, immigrants are people who come here. They're not even emigrants. They're just, they're expats. Isn't it lovely? British people can go abroad and be expats. But if somebody comes in, nobody ever says, there's a large Pakistani expat community in Bradford. Imagine. Yeah, that, do you see? But do you see what I'm saying? That actually the language we use is so tainted by the us and them thinking. We use words that are deliberately more loaded and pejorative of other people than we do of ourselves. And Paul, I think, is saying that kind of thinking has to go. I'm not necessarily saying, I don't think Paul would have been an express reader. Um, but even if he was, he would probably be tearing his hair out at all of those headlines. He might read it because he was interested in weather, who knows, or royals. But he'd be going, no, 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 we cannot allow ourselves to speak in those pejorative terms of other human beings God has made, even if we may think that at a policy level, there are discussions and debates that have to be had about how best to structure a nation like this. So behind many of those arguments that we hear, is often us and them thinking cloaked or disguised in a policy proposal. Here's 10 arguments I often hear, which I don't think necessarily add up to very much, but I think they carry on sticking around because they reflect an us and them mentality often. One, border control is just common sense. No, it's not. I didn't have any borders in the ancient world, and so there wasn't an issue of controlling them or not. As I said, Roman Empire, absolutely massive, no borders. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have any today but it means that to say that that's an obvious biblical or personal point, no, it's not necessarily. That may or may not be a good idea. Probably is in our world, but it's not something that we must believe in as Christians or anything like that. Two, there's not enough space. Not enough space. Can't, I can't have all these people in here. Not enough space for everybody. Well, I did some maths because I'm a nerd about these kinds of things. And I thought, right, let's do the analysis. And I found out if the whole EU, 733 million of us, if the whole EU moved into Europe, sorry, moved into Britain, in the UK, it would have a lower population density than Eastbourne. Right? All our marshes, our greenery, our South Downs, the whole UK, if the whole EU moved in here, would have a lower population density than Eastbourne. And I thought, ooh. And then I thought, I'll do some more maths. And I found out if the whole world moved into the British Isles, we would have about the same population density as Paris, and it would be half the population density of Manila. So even if the whole world lived here, we would still have half the population density of the capital of the Philippines. And I was sharing this at Staff Coffee, and my good friend Judith Barnett said, but then where would we grow all of our food? And I said, aha, in all the other countries. That's what we'd do. We'd turn them all into massive farms, and we could all live here. Now, I'm not saying I would necessarily want to live in that context. That's not my argument at all. It's just to say sometimes people say these things without really thinking them through. And it may be simply that it just reflects us and them. Third argument you hear, immigrants steal our jobs. No, they don't. They're not your jobs in the first place, and they don't steal them either. They generally say, I would like to bid for this amount of work, and if I do it at a higher quality, at less cost than you, then I'll get the job instead of you. That's the way the market works. It's not because they're stealing anything from you. They're just competing for the same jobs as you. If you were prepared to work at their level of quality for the same level of pay as them, then you would get the job yourself. Fourth, immigrants are a drain on the state. You often hear that. No, they're not, actually. Economically, they are a net contributor to the British economy. And the reason is, should you care, because generally immigrants are younger and healthier as a result than people who are native British. 
And so as a result, immigrants, I've got some stats here which might sound pretty boring. British people between 95 and 2011, a net fiscal loss to the state of 591 billion pounds. Basically because many of us are getting older and therefore more unwell, and as a result we cost the government money. I have two special needs children. They cost the government more money than they would if they were healthy. And they cost all of us. You see what I mean? So that's often what's happening. Migrants, EU migrants, a net fiscal gain of £10.6 billion between 2007 and 2011. And immigration also is the main reason why our birth rates aren't collapsing like they are in many parts of Europe. So immigrants are effectively enabling the population to stay pretty young, which means you'll be able to pay for pensions for those of us who are currently in our 40s, 50s and 60s. Hooray! I'm, I'm not in my 40s. I'm, anyway, you know what I mean? I'm cheering preemptively of when I one day get a pension. But you see, actually you hear it said, they're draining the state. saying, actually they're not. They're contributing more to the state than an awful lot of actually quite a lot of people in this room. Many of us are, maybe, native British, but a bit older, and maybe use the NHS more, and that probably cost the government more than the immigrants do. Fifth, nation states should make their own laws and not have them made in Brussels. Maybe. But why? Why, why, why do the national borders have to be the defining mark? Why not regions like Scotland? Why not counties like Sussex? Why can't we set up border controls and stop people at Tunbridge Wells saying, you shall not come in here without a passport and a green form saying that you weren't involved in the Holocaust? Why do, what, if, what if London was to do it? You know, I'm saying the borders are a little arbitrary, right? What if London was to do it? If London suddenly went UDI, we would all be in big trouble. London suddenly said, no, we're not having it. We're not going to trade with the rest of Britain. We are seceding from the Union and forming our own country. You think, right, we are in... That's, commuting is harder and slower. East Croydon becomes even more of a bottleneck than it is now. Uh, we are certainly having big economic problems. Maybe not so much in the southeast, although our train journeys would be difficult. But in many parts of the nation, would suddenly go into really quite significant poverty if London opted out. But what's to stop that happening? There's no reason necessarily why a national border should be the line that you draw. Sixth thing you hear, we should be using our tax revenues for British people, not foreigners. Again, I'd say, but why? GDP per head in the world is £8,000, roughly. Several times that in the UK. So the reason people want to come here when they do is generally because there's a lot more money here than there is somewhere else. And I don't think it's gospel thinking to say, because I, by an accident of birth, was born here, and you were born over there where they have much less, I am now entitled to preserve my wealth at your expense. I don't think it's necessarily obvious that you should do that from a gospel point of view. Seventh, well, I wouldn't let just anybody into my house, so why should I let anybody into my country? The analogy there assumes, doesn't it, that your nation is private property. But you do let just anybody into your street. You do let just anybody into your county. I think a nation's probably more like a street or a county than it is like a private property. I don't think the Bible indicates nations are privately owned at all. Eighth, we should have a referendum on these things. Yes, maybe, and now we do, um, which from my point of view, just a little sidebar, not in the Bible. I just think that's a way, surefire way of making sure that the decision gets made by people who don't know anything, um, including me and all of you. So personally, I think that's a strange way of doing it, but I'm fine with that, and I'm sure now that I've got the vote, I probably will use it. Ninth, immigration disrupts communities. Yeah, it does. Babies disrupt families. Gentiles disrupted the church. Disruption isn't necessarily bad. It might mean change. It might mean adaptation to new life. And tenth thing you hear, some immigrants don't even speak English. Yeah, that's true. Neither did our ancestors when we first moved here. Everybody's an immigrant. And we learned. So I think there's quite a lot of... Oh, there's little, I'm making ten tiny little points in a way, but what I'm saying is quite a lot of those things stick in popular imagination. Not so much because they're logically coherent, but because they may reflect just a bit of us and them. 
an e- it's an easy thing to repeat as a way of expressing a sense that we should have certain things and that them over there maybe shouldn't. Now, I need to be clear, obviously, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't have any national borders. I'm not saying, please don't go away from Daily Express. Andrew Wilson is a loon, because apart from many other things which we disagree with him on and his hatred of the Daily Express, he also thinks that we shouldn't have national borders. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I am saying in the ancient world they didn't, and they seem to do okay, but in the ancient world they didn't have cars, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't have cars. It just, I'm not saying, it's, it's not an ought or ought not issue. It's just simply saying it's not necessarily a biblical conviction that we should have. And I'm certainly not doing a Gordon Brown and saying, you've raised the issue of immigration, therefore you're a bigot. I'm not claiming that at all. And I'm certainly not saying that the Bible says we should have open borders. But what I am saying is that in the gospel, us and them thinking has to die. And as Christians, we're called not just to believe that, but to say it and to embody it in the way we live and communicate with anybody, who's, whether they're British or not. So we would see, for instance, immigration as an opportunity to welcome migrants or foreigners or asylum seekers, the people the Old Testament called sojourners, into our country. The Old Testament uses that language of sojourning as if to say, your homeland is here, but you for a season are now staying here. I ran into a Nigerian guy in our church yesterday on the street outside Sainsbury's. And he just, it's really interesting because he just said, so where do you stay? Instead of what I would say, where do you live? He'd said, where do you stay? Which is quite common amongst a lot of African cultures because they generally would talk that way about anywhere that isn't where you were born. You're born somewhere, you die somewhere, and the rest of the time you're staying somewhere rather than living there. That's the way he talked. I thought it was quite interesting. That language is reflected in the Old Testament language of sojourning. You are staying somewhere. And actually, both of us are displaced from our homeland. He lives a lot further away from his homeland than I do. But I was born in South London. He was born in Lagos. And we're both living away from where we were born. And I, he wasn't making a point. That's just how he talks. And that's how many Nigerians do. But I thought it was a, actually some good theology under that as well. Let's not absolutize those barriers that we have called national borders. So we would see immigration as an opportunity to welcome people who aren't from around here. We also see immigration as good for the gospel. Christians should, Christians should hear about large-scale immigration and whatever we think about policy proposals should say, whatever else you might say, guys, that's good for the gospel. Because we've read the book of Acts and we know that the book of Acts is a story of mission through migration. That's what happens. Mass immigration to Jerusalem. People hear the gospel and then go back out again. Mass emigration from Jerusalem to the nations. They preach the gospel and form new communities. The story of Acts is a non-stop story of migration from country to country, or if you like, from area to area, people group to people group. And it's brilliant, and that's how the gospel spreads. That's how the gospel reached many of the parts of the world that it has today. In fact, every part of the world it happened because somebody migrated from one place to another to go and tell people. It's how you heard the gospel. So we should hear immigration and think, well, that's probably may well present challenges here or here or here. And we've now got to have coherent housing policies and health policies. But my goodness, that's good for the gospel, isn't it? Because migration means the gospel gets to more people. We would also see immigration as good for the church because it provides us with a context to put on display the multicolored wisdom of God that Paul spoke about in Ephesians 3. He said, look around you. And if you literally do this, just look around you this morning. In fact, why don't we just do it right now? Just everybody just have a look. Do that thing where you're like meerkatting, where your head goes up like this and all like that, okay? Just have a look around, okay? Have a look at the range of people that are here in this room, okay? And you're not just looking for different colors, although that, that will be more visible, but you might be looking for people with backgrounds and ages and all sorts of things that in no other room in Eastbourne would a room this diverse be gathered on a Sunday morning or any day. When I went to this, I went to um, 
Any Questions, which was the um, BBC's, is a BBC version of, radio version of Question Time. The other night, I was there at Ratton School, they were hosting it, Jonathan Dimbleby and all these guys, and I just noticed as I looked around the room, every single person in here is white, and every, that I can see, and every single person is between 25 and 65, but probably most of them are between 35 and 65, and it is not a diverse community. You, and this is so much less diverse than my church. And I get in my church and I think, there is nowhere in Eastbourne that reflects a diversity like this. This room is more diverse than the town when you do the stats. It's amazing to think. And you just realize that's good for the church because it enables us to say to the world, look, this is what the death of Jesus does. It brings all these people together who wouldn't normally hang out. And in no other part of the town do they hang out except on Sundays. And they get in the same room and they worship God together. And you look and say, the manifold wisdom of God is at work. God must be very smart to engineer a community like that in a world where a lot of people think of us and them. So immigration in that sense should be good for the church. And even when complex decisions have to be made, and they do, we refuse as Christians to allow ourselves to be railroaded into unloving or uncaring behavior by the narrative of us and them. When somebody asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, he told them a story that basically said, those awkward foreigners you don't like who live in the same country as you. That's the Good Samaritan, isn't it? Go back to Colossians 3 verse 11. And just notice the first word. That's my favorite word in that verse, right? Here, there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Here. I love that word. I love it because it sounds like Paul to me is saying, look, in the world, you have these groups. They exist. Barbarian group over there, Scythian group over there, and they only want to meet with people like them. And in our country, it's not just on the grounds of race. It's on the grounds of many, many other things. The social group who like this. The social group, of, I went to a boarding school, right? So I know all about these things. You know, everybody there, oh, all of your parents are called, hello, Jeremy, Fiona. You know, they're all called those things. And you never, there's so many names that you'd never find. They're not, they're not allowed parent, not allowed to have kids at boarding school. They'd be banned for having the wrong name or the wrong background and they all play certain sports and they drive different cars and there's a little bubble like that and then there's dozens and dozens of bubbles in this town all of which are self-reinforcing and Paul says of course the world's like that but we don't have it here not here here in Christ no Greek Jew circumcised everywhere else fine you form your little bubbles in your clubs if you must but here we don't have that the gospel has destroyed those barriers so barbarians and Scythians are just not categories we use to define who we are anymore The gospel has swallowed up all of those divisions in the manifold wisdom of God. And here, there aren't any Greeks and Jews or barbarians and Scythians. There aren't any immigrants and natives. There aren't any scroungers and bankers. But Christ is all and is in all. And he put that on display and highlighted to the church, that's one of the things that you must preserve and put off about your old life and preserve and put on about your new life. All of us are immigrants. I don't just mean that nationally, spiritually. We're all immigrants, unless we're Jewish. If you're Jewish here, you get a pass on this point. But if you're not Jewish, if you're a Gentile, you are somebody who is, whether you're a Christian or not, you are approaching God, you are singing this morning. Even if you're not a believer here today, you are still in the presence of God and his people. You have been welcomed in, and I welcome you and we welcome you in to join in worshiping Israel's God. And you weren't entitled to, and neither was I, because we were all outsiders, We were all foreigners, and you read the book of Acts, they show you how that happened and how it was that we were allowed in, and not just allowed in, but welcomed in and encouraged in. We have been given a community that we don't deserve, and a land that we don't own, and a status that we can't earn. We've been raised with Christ, verse 1. We've been hidden with Christ in God, 
verse 3. Christ is our life and we will appear with him in glory, verse 4. You and I came to Christ, destitute beggars that we were, and said, I want a home and I don't have one. And I've been at sea for weeks. I've been in this, this camp. I've been wait- I'm in Songat, all right, near Calais. I'm peering across the, Atlantic, across the English Channel thinking, I'd love to get into that land over there where everything's green and it flows with milk and honey. I'd love to get in there, but at the moment I'm not allowed because I don't have the documents. Would somebody please take me in and make me at home? And God said, yes, and I will bring you into this land, give you all the rights and privileges of sonship and heirdom, and I will do it no matter how irritable it makes the neighbours, which it did, and no matter how much it costs me, which it did, he gave his life for it, and I will include you in and give you everything that these natives, these Jews have. You will be in Christ with them, with the dividing wall abolished, and all the privileges they have stretching right back to Abraham will be yours because of Christ. We're all immigrants. We're all immigrants. And as such, as immigrant people, we should be those who, whatever policies get enacted and however you vote in referendums, who communicate, live, embody a love for the stranger, for the foreigner, for the visitor, for the guest, for the brother or sister who isn't from around here. The death of us and them has taken place in Christ and our lives then are an outworking of that in the course of a nation where us and them is still very much alive. God in Christ has destroyed it. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. I'm going to ask Faye and the guys to come up and and join us. And we're going to conclude the meeting by breaking bread. And the reason I want to do that is because breaking bread is probably the most tangible visual symbol that there is in the church anywhere of the oneness of God's people. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 10. Though we are many... We are one body because we all share in the same loaf. That's a strange comment. You could have said all share in the same gospel, and he does elsewhere, or all share in the same baptism, and he does elsewhere. But there he said, though we're many, we are one body because we all share in the same loaf. Now this church is large, so we have more than one loaf. At Corinth, maybe they only had the one for a meal. We're bigger than the church in Corinth, so we've got multiple loaves. But you are now not only breaking bread and drinking the cup, the juice, representing the wine and the blood of Jesus. You're, you're sharing that not just with the other people here. You're sharing it with the people I've just been to preach to in Centro and the people who were here two hours ago, the people who are over in Seaford in our church. It's probably nearly a thousand of us. But you're also sharing it with 62 or 63 other churches in Eastbourne, many of whom today are going to the Lord's table and taking it as well. And you're also sharing it with millions and millions of people who are doing it in England and with billions upon billions of people who are doing it in the world right now. In every nation on earth, probably, there is in every nation state, I expect, possibly except North Korea, there are people getting together with other believers to break bread and drink wine and they're doing it to symbolize the oneness that comes about in Christ. And I wanted us to finish by doing that and just remembering the cross that makes that possible. It's only when you have a crucified saviour that you can remove all other barriers and come united in worship to him. However different you are, however much you disagree with other people about things, however much you would like to be in different kinds of rooms from those people, The gospel through Christ makes us one. And so we're going to break bread together to celebrate that. Could we stand?
And the way we do it here, if you're new, is we have four tables in the corners of the room. This is something that we do for Christians, actually. So if you're not a Christian, we'd ask you to just observe this one out and just, just sit and watch. In fact, there'll be other people doing that too. But if you are a Christian, it doesn't matter what kind of church you're from. We would welcome anybody here who is a kind of baptized believer. Come and break bread, take wine with us, and celebrate the oneness that we have in Jesus Christ. In your, in your own time, if you just want to head to the tables, take bread and juice and give thanks to God for the gospel that makes us one.